Welcome to The Week Ahead in Russia, RFERL's Monday podcast about significant developments and upcoming events in Moscow and beyond. I'm Steve Gutterman. I'm back after a two-week hiatus. And my guest today is Olga Oliker, the Program Director for Europe and Central Asia at the Crisis Group. Thank you very much for joining me today, Dr. Oliker. Thank you for having me. All right. It's great to have you on the show again. Now, before we start, I just wanted to mention um, a change in the format that kicked in a couple months ago. Now, we're no longer conducting this podcast on X, the social network formerly known as Twitter. Instead, we are recording it in the studio. Uh, But as before, you can subscribe to The Week Ahead in Russia and other Radio for Europe podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, the first thing I want to ask about certainly involves the week ahead, but is focused less on Russia uh, than on Ukraine and on events uh, that will be happening far from Russia. I'm talking about Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's trip to the United States this week, um, where his address to the UN General Assembly in New York will be one of the most closely watched or listened to addresses um, at the annual event uh, and where he is due to meet uh, with U.S. President Joe Biden at the White House on Thursday, September 21st. Uh, Now, Zelensky may also address the U.S. Congress. I'm not sure whether that has been confirmed at this point. Now, it won't be the first time uh, that Biden has hosted Zelensky at the White House. It will be the third time since uh, Biden took office in January 2021. That was 13 months before Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. And it also uh, won't be the, wouldn't be the first time that Zelensky, who was elected in 2019, uh, has addressed the U.S. Congress or the UN General Assembly. Last year, uh, he did the latter um, uh, remotely. Um, This time he is headed for New York. Um, Now, but this trip is coming as Ukraine uh, presses a major counteroffensive that it launched in early June. More about that later in the podcast. Uh, And it comes as the U.S. presidential election in November 2024 draws closer with Russia's war against Ukraine and U.S. support for Ukraine seemingly shaping up to be a substantial issue in that contest and in the legislative elections in the U.S. Now, uh, I also mentioned uh, mentioned the counteroffensive, also mentioned that uh, this just in, um, in Ukraine, uh, there's there's a a quite new uh, defense minister, Rustam Umerov, and his he has apparently dismissed uh, seven, I believe it's maybe all seven uh, deputy defense ministers, um, uh, but not the first deputy defense minister, I believe. So that's sort of part of a continuing uh, shakeup uh, in the government, in particular, the military, um, also coming um, obviously on the eve of, of Zelensky's uh, visit to the UN General Assembly and to uh, to Washington. 
So, Dr. Olker, I'd just like to ask uh, for some of your views on this. How important is this U.S. trip, I guess, for Zelensky and, and for Ukraine? And is there anything in particular that you'll be watching this week or watching for this week, whether it's at the U.N. Uh, or in Washington? Look, so this trip isn't going to be decisive in the sense that uh, Zelensky is trying to maintain assistance. He's got it, right? The United States and the other Western and the other non-Western states that have been supporting Ukraine are doing it from their own assessment of their own security interests. And Zelensky is long past the point of having to convince them that they have to do this uh, and that there, there's value to doing it. Um, and I think when he meets with Biden, when he talks to other U.S. officials, what he's what he's going to be looking for is new commitments for aid and weapons, which, let's be honest, uh, are going to have been arranged before he shows up for those meetings. So, you know, the idea is that they're going to what they're what are they going to announce? They probably already know. Um, but I think behind those conversations about what weapons and um what other economic support and any other kind of support is going to be forthcoming are also conversations about, on the one hand, accountability, and on the other hand, long-term needs and sustainability. How do you keep this going? And we've seen that the United States, European countries are looking to um, ramp up their own defense industry in order both to support Ukraine and because they're thinking about the Russia challenge in the long term. Ukraine wants a piece of this, right? It doesn't want to be stuck where it is entirely a consumer. Ukraine has uh, historically had a very strong defense industry and it's going to want to rebuild it. So I think that's also going to be part of the conversation. And the accountability point, I want to kind of hammer that a bit, uh, looking at the news coming out of Ukraine, it looks like it is all of the deputy defense ministers and the state secretary of the minister who have been fired, uh, a total of uh, seven people. And, you know, that's that's a signal uh, in many ways, the same way that Omerov's appointment was a signal. It's not that necessarily anybody thinks that all of these people were corrupt or even doing their jobs poorly, but it's a signal that what he's going to do is shake things up and bring in new people and make sure that there is proper oversight. And that's meant to reassure, on the one hand, Ukraine's partners. Sure, it's also meant to reassure Ukrainians who don't want their tax money ill-spent and who are also watching all of this uh, with um, great interest and nervousness, right? At a time of war, especially, uh, if business as usual means people siphoning money off, well, that becomes treasonous. Uh, I think the other thing that we're all going to be watching is how Zelensky interacts with his counterparts at the General Assembly. Uh, and here the question is whether Ukraine can broaden its foreign policy from one that's very much focused on what I like to call the regional North Atlantic to one that's actually focused on the rest of the world. And I think it's going to come as no surprise to your listeners, uh, no news, right, that while there is a general broad support for Ukraine that it's plight, there's also been frustration in uh, countries in Africa and the Middle East in South and Central America with just the attention that Western states pay to Ukraine and the attitude towards it, right? This isn't the only war that's currently going on. This isn't the only suffering that's currently going on in the world. But you might think that if you listen to some Western officials. And of course, part of that is quite simply that this is a war in Europe. It's a war with 
enormous implications for European security. So, of course, European countries and their um, North American allies are focused on it. But beyond that, because it's a war in Europe, because it's um, a war that involves Russia, the country with the most nuclear weapons in, on, the, on this planet, it is a war with global implications. So it has these shockwaves that resonate uh, in a way that other, other wars do not. So Ukraine needs to make the case that it is not just in the interests of the European countries, the United States and Canada, and South Korea and Japan, that Russia fail in its effort to overwhelm Ukraine and to establish its right to dominate its neighborhood, but it's in the interests of all these other countries in the world. So to some extent, Zelensky is going to be trying to build on the JEDA meeting from August, where 40 countries, including China and the US, came together to talk about uh, Ukraine and the future of the war and trying to build a coalition that's more global. And that's a direct counter to Russia's narrative, which posits it as the vanguard of a global movement against US hegemony. So the point is to say, no, that's not right. In fact, nobody likes what you're doing and everybody wants to stop you. Uh, so you know, my big question is how, how, does, how well does this work? And also how much follow-up are we going to see from the Ministry of Foreign Affairs later, which for instance promised uh, 10 new embassies on the African continent, which as far as I know have not yet opened. Uh, that's very interesting. I, I mean, I guess one, uh, uh, one sign of, of, you know, an effort uh, by Ukraine to, to kind of uh, make that broad message, convey that broad message, um, Zelensky's uh, interview yesterday uh, in which uh, he may have said this before, but he said, you know, Russia, if Russia is not stopped, we could have World War Three. And that's I mean, obviously, the word word world, uh, World War Three, you know, he, he's casting that as, uh, you know, the, this war as, as as something that is threatening, uh, threatening a war that's that's much broader. Uh, and obviously, the, the nuclear weapons play into that. I was um I was struck a little bit by just an Associated Press um, kind of explainer uh, I saw this morning about the General Assembly, and it said it said everything you need to know about the General Assembly, and it said in the in the in the first paragraph, I guess in the opening, it said there's no one single crisis that's set to dominate, and that kind of struck me as somebody who's covering. Uh, covering from afar, of course, uh, the Ukraine, the war in Ukraine, that struck me as something a bit surprising because it felt like, uh, th isn't this um, a major crisis that may dominate to some degree? But maybe, uh, maybe the point is there that, you know, as you said, there are many countries around the world uh, that, you know, understand this isn't the only war happening. And um, that have other things on their minds, so that I guess that that presents kind of a challenge for Zelensky to, you know, to uh, to, to get that message across that you that you mentioned. And it's interrelated, uh, if I may uh, do a little shout out to a piece we just put out at Crisis Group last week on 10 challenges for the UN over the next year. Ukraine's on there, but it's 10 challenges for the UN over the next year. It's it's not the only one. And I think part of the challenge for Zelensky is to make the case for the importance of Ukraine without seeming to diminish uh, the importance of all of the other things on the agenda from, you know, Sudan, 
uh, to uh, Afghanistan, you know, and so it just, you know, it just keeps going and going and going. So, you know, to recognize that Ukraine is part of a global community, even as it's facing a crisis that indeed has huge implications for the entire world. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just wanted to follow up um, a little bit on the uh, which you brought to my attention, the, the firings of, of these uh, the deputy defense ministers and the and the state secretary of the ministry. Um, you know, one name, Hannah Maliar, in particular, has been very prominent, at least for journalists. Um, she's been um, making a lot of the comments about um, about Ukrainian gains and 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 losses, I guess, uh, on the front line. You know, for for many months. Um, but I guess the question was. Do you see this as something that is going to be seen as a real in the West, I guess, as kind of a real, um, you know, real effort to to tackle problems or more as more as as a cosmetic uh, move? I think it depends on what they do next. Um, Right. Who does Amerov bring in into these jobs and what do these people do? I don't think anybody, whether it's in Washington or Brussels or Odessa, uh, thinks that simply the removal of one set of people and the replacement by another is sufficient. As I said, I don't even know that, you know, this isn't like a, uh, it's it's not as though they're being fired for cause, at least. They're just, it's, this was Reznikov's team and Umerov is going to have his own team. And America's mandate is very much to clean things up and to prove that Ukraine can do this in a way that is professional and efficient and accountable. That means that Ukraine is going to figure out what it needs in the long term and it's going to lay out its plans and it's going to monitor the assistance that's provided. And right, that's what they need to prove that they are going to be able to do. And again, I think it's so important to underline that they don't just need to prove that to the donor countries, they need to prove that to their own population. Yeah, absolutely. That'll be obviously uh, also a big audience for for this move. Okay. um, Now, thanks very much, Olga. Now, um, I said we'd come back to the counteroffensive. I'm going to ask kind of a dual question. There's obviously a lot of talk about Ukraine's current counteroffensive uh, against Russia's unprovoked invasion. The counteroffensive started in early June, uh, and I guess a very brief assessment might be that Ukrainian forces have made some gains, uh, including some quite recently, um, but that it's unclear whether or when um, they might be able to break the so-called land bridge or land corridor, the strip of Azov Sea coastal land that Russia holds and that extends from the Russian border in the east to the isthmus uh, that leads to occupied Crimea uh, further west, kind of in central, in central, south central Ukraine. Um, so, Olga, I'm interested in your view of how this current counteroffensive is going. Um, a lot of talk about that, of course, and maybe what it could mean in terms of the further course of the war. And the second part of the dual question. Um, There's been a great deal of debate, uh, particularly this summer, I think, about prospects for talks or diplomacy, or at least debate about things that have been written about this matter. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail, um, but I'll just ask for your assessment of the prospects at this point for any kind of peace talks or diplomacy 
uh, or, or diplomacy that might lead in that direction? Sure. So when we talk about Ukraine's counteroffensive, and it's many months long counteroffensive at this point, what you're looking at is Ukraine having to actually take on a substantial offensive mission uh, where Russia has put in defenses, uh, solid defenses in place over a long period of time, reinforced. Defense is always easier than offense, all other things being equal. Um, this, you know, so it took a very long time to start breaking through. Now we're seeing some breakthroughs. I think it's also really important to understand that all the information that we get about the state of things on the battlefield is coming from one or the other party. It's not as though you've got a lot of truly independent journalists running around reporting. Uh, you know, if you're reporting, somebody gave you access. So it's complicated, right? War is always foggy. It's along a very long front line, so different environments in different places from more populated and built up to farmland and so forth. But you, it does look like what we're seeing is Ukraine making real progress now. Um, it's going to be long and messy until and unless it stops being long and messy, right? And I think that's part, the part of this is just a recognition that Ukraine is ready for it to keep being long and messy, that it might just be um, attritional warfare over a long period of time, occasional offensives with one or the other side pushing really, really hard. We've seen Ukraine be more successful with the pushing um, over the last uh, year or so, but you know, let's see what happens. Ukraine is trying to demonstrate that it is committed um, and that its backers are committed. Now, Russia is also trying to demonstrate that it's committed. And I think for the Russians, they may no longer think that they're more committed than the Ukrainians, but I believe they still think uh, in the Kremlin that they are more committed than Ukraine's backers. And from their perspective, the best way for this war to end is for the supply of weapons and economic assistance to Ukraine to stop. Um, and. I don't think they expect this to be immediate, but they've got an eye on elections in the West, particularly that in the United States. And, you know, I think from their perspective, they're waiting to see what happens with that, whether any of that creates more openings. So, you know, but that's still quite a ways away. And they're stuck in the position of having to demonstrate that they're going to wait at least that long. And I think we probably believe them at least for now, that they are inclined to wait at least that long. So this doesn't actually create much space for negotiations. When the Russians talk about negotiations, they say, yeah, sure, we are basically perfectly happy to accept Ukraine's surrender and Ukraine's acceptance that uh, territory that isn't even fully in Russian control is in fact Russian. And you know, then we can go from there and demilitarize Ukraine and all these other things which isn't a particularly useful uh, negotiating starting point if you're Ukraine. Uh, now, one of the things that proponents of negotiations argue is that, of course, everybody's opening positions are maximalist. But, you know, I think the coming to the table, the willingness to come to the table um, needs to come we need to get from the Russians a sense that they understand that they don't have the upper hand. For as long as the Russians think they're coming to the table with the upper hand, that 
they do have more um, that they are more committed, that they have more resilience and the Ukrainians are their backers, they're going to push for more and more and more. And not only is that going to undermine the negotiations, it can do real damage politically to Zelensky and his administration for even going to these talks in the first place. So for that reason, I think it's very unlikely that we're going to see any meaningful talks uh, until and unless something changes on the battlefield. Thanks very much. Um, yeah, a couple of things struck me. Um, one is it, it's frustrating. Sometimes you even, you know, you see headlines or articles that say, you know, Russia says ready for talks. You know, but as you as you said, uh, um, the position is talks about your, you know, essentially acknowledging or ha- handing a, handing Russia control over over well, four or five, if you count Crimea, regions in Ukraine, uh, including large portions of those regions that are not even under Russian control now. So, you know, got to get really to 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 the context in, in those kind of stories right away. Um, uh, another thing, you know, you, you rightly mentioned, I, you know, I think two of the things that going back to the beginning of the large-scale invasion in twenty. Uh, February 2022, two of the things that that I think surprised or that surprised Russia, took Russia by surprise was, were, you know, the commitment of of Ukraine, its forces and its people, um, which has been kind of shown to be constant, um, you know, for more than a year and a half now. And then also the commitment of the West. So those two things surprised them. You mentioned Maybe Russia doesn't, uh, you know, doesn't believe it's more committed than Ukraine anymore, uh, but it still p- probably thinks it can outlast uh, kind of the Western support, Western commitment, um, and is waiting. Um, I, I just want to kind of waiting for for the elections uh, next year in the U.S. And, and other places. I just wanted to, um, and this is probably a hard question, a follow up question, but. I mean, you you said pretty much, or if I'm if I'm if I understood correctly, you said pretty much no no chance or no you know no prospects for for any meaningful talks unless there's a big change in the battlefield. Given the fact that Russia is kind of waiting for these elections, uh, what do you think are are the chances of some kind of a big change uh, on the battlefield? I guess in the next year. I don't know. Yeah. Um... As I said, war is foggy, and uh, we have very limited information, and I am not going to make predictions uh, about things I really don't, I don't have the data to make predictions about. Um, All sorts of things are possible. I think the other thing that's possible, and I probably should have said this, I think much as uh, as Russia is hoping for political change in the West, Uh, people in the West and in Ukraine are hoping for some sort of political change in Russia, not that they have high hopes for elections, but they I think there is a certain amount of hope that uh, the uh, Prigozhin mutiny of this summer was um, was a symptom, right? Not a cause, that there's a brittleness to the Russian system, that the unhappiness that we know is present among elites with the war and the overall direction of Russia 
will come to a head and force some sort of change. Now, there's no reason to think the Kremlin has any doubts about its direction or what it's doing, but there are certainly people around uh, who do. So can that can, can something happen to change the situation in Russia? That's also pretty much impossible to predict based on data currently available. Um, and I think this is, this is part of the, the challenge here is that you've got a certain amount of planning that is, um, you know, that, that's based on hope rather than reality. Uh, as long as that is also paired with planning that's based on reality, um, that's okay. But at the, the point at which people start uh, developing their actual uh, their actual plans for ways forward, uh, based on what they'd really like to see happen rather than what's most likely to happen, uh, I think that's a recipe for a lot of policy failures. All right, thank you, and and. Um... Yeah, great to point out, you know, great point that there's sort of two sides of the coin um, in terms of the possibility for, for some kind of change, political change. And I guess in Russia, that will um, depend, at least in part, also on uh, what happens on the battlefield. Um, okay, uh, I guess we are going to wrap it up here. Um, excellent insights. Uh, thank you very much for joining me, Olga. Thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure. All right. Pleasure is mine. Uh, once again, I've been speaking to Dr. Olga Olicker, Program Director for Europe and Central Asia at the Crisis Group. And my name is Steve Gutterman, Editor for Russia, Ukraine, and Belarus in the Central Newsroom at Radio Free Europe. I'll be back next week for another edition of The Week Ahead in Russia, and please keep an eye out for my newsletter, The Week in Russia, which comes out most Fridays. Thanks for listening. 